The lead actor in tonight's episode began his film and television career performing in Citizen Kane, where he played as both a young man and an old man, one of Charles Foster Kane's oldest friends. He went on to perform in two other Orson Welles films in the 40s, including Journey into Fear. Here he is in Citizen Kane as an old man. Me? I'm chairman of the board. I got nothing but time. What do you want to know? Well, Mr. Bernstein, we thought maybe if we could find out what he meant by his last words as he was dying. That rosebud, huh? Maybe some girl. There were a lot of them back in the early days. It's hardly likely, Mr. Bernstein, that Mr. Kane could have met some girl casually and then 50 years later on his deathbed. Well, you're pretty young, Mr. Mr. Thompson. A fellow remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. Welcome to Episode 8 of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and if you thought for a moment there I was stuck in a time loop and was going to talk about Joseph Cotton again, you can see that that isn't the case. Because that wasn't a clip with Jedediah Leland, that was a clip with Mr. Bernstein. I don't think Mr. Bernstein ever gets a first name. And Mr. Bernstein was played by Everett Sloan. Everett Sloan made his New York stage debut in 1928 at the age of 19. He also took a job as a stockbroker's runner, but after the 1929 stock market crash, his salary was halved, so he supplemented his income with radio work. This led to his involvement in Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, the Mercury Theater on the air. Now, Everett Sloan kept doing radio work even after he was in films and television, pretty much for the rest of his career, at least until radio dies out. One of his recurring radio roles, at least for a short time, was as the cab driver Shrevey on The Shadow. Here's an example of that. This is from a 1940 episode, so this predates Citizen Kane. Bill Morrison plays The Shadow here, but I assume that Sloan also performed with Orson Welles when he played The Shadow. What brings you here, Shrevey? Well, I was going to ask you two to do it. You two to do <laughs> I was going to ask you two to do a favor for me. I was going to ask you. Well, what's that? Well, the cops just got a rule that you can't cruise in no empty taxi cab in the theater district. You can't cruise. Yes. So? So? So I was wondering if you wasn't busy or nothing, if you'd kind of like to ride around in my cab and be dummies-like until I pick up a real fare until. Be dummies-like? Yeah, I wouldn't charge you nothing. I wouldn't charge you. Oh, that's very tempting, Shrevey, but Shrevey, I... you won't have to do that. You've got a cash customer. Who? Me. One of his other radio roles is in the Studio One broadcast of The 39 Steps in March of 1948, where he plays, I think, several different roles. After Citizen Kane, he appears in Journey into Fear, along with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, and in The Lady from Shanghai with Orson Welles. When he moves into television roles, he appears in a number of anthologies, Suspense, 
Lights Out, Inner Sanctum, Tales of Tomorrow. He's in the thriller episode, The Guilty Men. He's in both the television and film versions of Rod Serling's Patterns. And he's in the Twilight Zone episode, The Fever. He's also in three episodes of The Joseph Cotton Show. We'll see him in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the next being Place of Shadows, episode 22. Now, Everett Sloan seems to be one of those unfortunate people who aged rapidly. In this episode, he seems aged when he's only 45. Of course, it could be makeup. Citizen Kane is only 14 years before, where he's very youthful as the young Mr. Bernstein. Now, if the apparent early aging wasn't enough, Sloan's eyesight started to fail him. And so, fearing he was going blind, he sadly committed suicide in 1965 at the age of 55. Now, that's a pretty sober way to start tonight's episode. So let's jump back in time 10 years to 1955 and appreciate Everett Sloan's performance. First, though, we have to hear from Hitch. He is sitting at a desk that has a phone and an ashtray on it. It also has three long-stemmed wine glasses, marked in sequence X, Y, and Z. Well, good evening. Now, I'm not drinking on the job, not for pleasure at any rate. I'm an amateur wine taster. A friend suspects that someone has been tampering with his wine. Of course, there's no use going to the trouble of a laboratory test when any self-respecting gourmet can detect impurities. He sips from the glass labeled X. Nothing wrong here. A very fine burgundy, a Romani Conti, I would say. Now he sips from the glass labeled Y. This is Muscatel, homemade, no doubt. The do-it-yourself craze knows no bounds. And finally he sips from the glass labeled Z. Something foreign has been added, a large quantity too. Anyone could have detected. But exactly what? And he goes back to wine glass Z and drinks the whole thing down. I have it. Arsenic. I wish I had more of it. it. It's very good, really. That is, if you like a very dry wine. While you wait to see what possible effect this may have on me, you may watch our dramatization of one of Dorothy L. Sayers' stories. So here's Our Cook's a Treasure. First broadcast November 20th, 1955. Starring Everett Sloan and Beulah Bondi. Teleplay by Robert C. Dennis, based on Suspicion by Dorothy L. Sayers, directed by Robert Stevens. Our leading man is Ralph Montgomery, played by Everett Sloan. He's ready to have breakfast and read his newspaper before heading off to work. But his cook, Mrs. Sutton, played by Beulah Bondi, reads the newspaper ahead of him. It's the Daily Dispatch and her copy of the dispatch has a headline, Human Shield Bandit Strikes Again, with a subheadline of, Shoots Station Attendant, Seizes Child, and Escapes. And that sounds like a good Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode in and of itself. When Mrs. Sutton sees Ralph coming, she folds the newspaper up rather haphazardly, puts it down for him to read. But Ralph isn't too pleased with her treatment of his newspaper. What's the latest development on the foreign aid program, Mrs. Sutton? I beg pardon? Is the market holding steady? 
Or is it the race results? If you object to me glancing at your paper, Mr. Martin. Glance at it, read it, memorize it. Why, you couldn't get it in this condition, short of, of wrapping fish in it. Well, I'm sure the news is no different just because of an extra crease or two. No, but my disposition is. I don't know why a woman can't understand that a man likes his paper in a virginal condition. Here's your cocoa. And don't think you can charm me out of it just because you make the best cup of cocoa east of the Mississippi. Now, about that line, Jacqueline Pye, the pie lady, asks, has Ralph had better cocoa west of the Mississippi? Good question. And I think we're going to just sort of jump over the line about, I don't understand how a woman doesn't realize that a man likes his newspaper in a virginal condition. We'll leave that back in 1955. Now, I also jumped over an earlier part of the conversation which I probably shouldn't have done, because already, right at the very beginning, we get some little tells about what Mrs. Sutton may know and what's going on in this household. This is the first thing that Ralph says to Mrs. Sutton when he enters. Good morning, Mrs. Sutton. Mrs. Montgomery isn't feeling very well this morning. Oh, she overdoes. The whole trouble. I tell her she'd only try to rest occasionally. She's got too much nervous energy, that's all. You might take up a cup of cocoa to her later. She'd have a fit if I do. It's coffee or nothing for her. And then there's this little revealing moment, which takes place just after the conversation about the newspaper. Would you like lamb curry with chutney for your dinner tonight? Why, Mrs. Sutton, you've sold your soul to the devil. How did you know that I had no resistance to lamb curry? Well, just because I'm new here doesn't mean that I don't know what's what. What is what? With that line, Ralph's wife, Ethel, enters. It's a nice little bit of foreshadowing, because we'll find out by the end that Mrs. Sutton does know what's what. Ethel does, too. Now, Mrs. Sutton is played by Beulah Bondi, and Ethel by Janet Ward. I don't have too much to say about Janet Ward. She appeared in the films Failsafe, The Anderson Tapes, and Night Moves. She's here and there in television from the 50s to the 70s on such shows as Perry Mason, Barney Miller, and Kojak. But she never appears again in Alfred Hitchcock Presents or anything associated with Alfred Hitchcock. And she died in 1995 at the age of 70. Beulah Bondi is probably best remembered as George Bailey's mother in It's a Wonderful Life, in which she gets to play nice Mrs. Bailey... Did you know that Mary Hatch is back from school? Mm. Came back three days ago. Mm. Nice girl, Mary. Mm. Kind that'll help you find the answers, George. Mm. Oh, stop that grunting. Mm. Can you give me one good reason why you shouldn't call on Mary? Sure, Sam Wainwright. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sam's crazy about Mary. Oh, she's not crazy about him. Well, how do you know? Now, what, she discuss it with him? No. Well, then how do you know? Well, I've got eyes, haven't I? She lights up like a firefly whenever you're around. Oh. Besides, Sam Wainwright's away in New York, and you're here in Bedford Falls. And all's fair in love and war. Well, I don't know about war. <laughs> and then, when George wishes himself out of existence, as mean Mrs. Bailey. Well? Mother. Mother, what do you want? 
Mother, this... This is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. George who? If you're looking for a room, there's no vacancy. Oh, mother, listen, please help me. Something terrible's happened to me. I, I, I don't know what it is. Something's happened to everybody. Please let me come in and, and, and keep me here until I get over it. Get over what? I don't take in strangers unless they're sent here by somebody I know. What? Well, I know everybody you know. What, you, your brother-in-law, Uncle Billy. You know him? Well, sure I do. When did you see him last? Today, over at his house. It's a lie. He's been in the insane asylum ever since he lost his business. And if you ask me, that's where you belong. As Mrs. Sutton here, she's more mean Mrs. Bailey than nice Mrs. Bailey. Besides It's a Wonderful Life, Beulah Bondi also played Jimmy Stewart's mother in three other films of Human Hearts, Vivacious Lady, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. She also has a credit in IMDb for The Jimmy Stewart Show in 1971, in which she's listed as playing Mother Howard. Now, since Jimmy Stewart plays Professor James K. Howard, I suspect that she's Jimmy Stewart's mother in that as well. Beulah Bondi got her start in films in 1931. She appears as Emma Jones in the film Street Scene, reprising the role that she played in the Elmer Rice play on Broadway. She was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in The Gorgeous Hussy in the first year in which the award was offered. She was nominated again two years later for her role in Of Human Hearts, but she didn't win either time. She did win an Emmy for her performance in the Waltons episode, The Pony Cart, but that was her last performance on film or screen. And she died in 1981 at age 91 from complications from broken ribs caused when she tripped over her cat. And like Janet Ward, we won't see Beulah Bondi again in the series. Let's get back to the episode. As Ralph prepares to go to work, Ethel informs him that it's her night for the drama club. She's doing Summer and Smoke, the Tennessee Williams play, She's playing the lead opposite Don Welbeck. The doorbell rings incessantly. It's Earl Kramer, Ralph's friend, with whom he walks to the train station. Earl has a newspaper in his hand. His newspaper headline is Hunt Killer of Blonde Orchid. His newspaper is also the Daily Dispatch. Maybe yesterday's paper or an earlier edition? Earl is played by Elliot Reed, and he, like Everett Sloan, worked with Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater on the Air. His best-known role is probably as Jane Russell's love interest in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He's in one other Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next appearance is Design for Loving, Episode 6 of Season 4. And Elliot Reed died in 2013 at the age of 93. And so the two men walk to the station, and as they walk, they discuss the latest news. Crisis in French cabinet. Uh, well-known jockey suspended. Illinois prison riot quelled. Uh, the police have new lead on Mrs. Andrews. Who's Mrs. Andrews? She's that housekeeper who's been poisoning all those women. Oh, that one. She's got a pretty impressive record, too. Knocked off three women in a row. Strictly minor leagues. I bet it'll turn out she mistook the arsenic for salt. Mm-hmm. Very good, Ralph. If I get the case, that's the defense I'll use. But, uh, remind me never to buy any real estate from you. You're a con man at heart, my boy. Come on, come on, let's not miss our train. We discover in that little snippet that Earl is a lawyer, which does us absolutely no good because it never comes up again. Ralph gets to work, and he is dictating a letter to his secretary when he starts to get sick. With reference to your inquiry regarding the office building located at... at... Uh, where was I? 
the office building located at? Oh, yes. The, uh, the Harbin building, uh, you fill in the address. Uh, please be advised that this office has an offer of $225,000. Period. Is something wrong, Mr. Montgomery? What? Oh, no, no, it's just a little indigestion. Uh, this office uh, has a commitment for a first mortgage loan. Mr. Montgomery. Oh. It's nothing. It'll be all right. Here, let me help you. There, just lie down a minute. Mr. Brooks? Mr. Brooks, can you come in? Mr. Montgomery's sick. Doris Singleton plays Ralph's secretary. And Doris appeared in many roles in old-time radio, including some roles on the old series Lux Radio Theater, a series we'll get to a little bit later. She was in the Twilight Zone episode, a kind of a stopwatch, also as a secretary. But Doris is best known for her role as Caroline Appleby, Lucy's friend and nemesis in I Love Lucy. Here's a great scene with Doris and Lucille Ball. Uh, my, uh, Stevie's grown a lot since I last saw him. Oh, yeah, he's really shooting up. Oh, yes. When do you think he'll reach normal size? <laughs> he's exactly the size he's supposed to be. <laughs> he just seems small to you, because you're so used to looking at little Fatty here. Fatty? Oh, yes. I just love chubby, puffy little boys. <laughs> oh, Ricky, you're gonna have to go on a diet or you'll grow up to look like your mommy. This is from Wikipedia. In 1966, Singleton was teamed again with Ball on The Lucy Show in the episode Lucy and Art Linkletter, in which she plays Ruth Cosgrove, an actress whom Linkletter hires to help Lucy with a stunt on his television series. In an interview in the Lucy book by Jeffrey Mark Feidelman, Singleton revealed that she had originally been hired to be a regular on Ball's third series, Here's Lucy, in 1968. Ball would have played a dumb secretary and Singleton the more intelligent one, but the premise was dropped when Ball decided to cast her own children in the show. She did, however, appear in the series premiere episode, Mod Mod Lucy. Her final appearance on Here's Lucy was in 1974 as Lucille Ball's studio secretary in an episode titled Lucy Meets Lucille Ball. Singleton and Ball were reunited one last time, again as Ball's studio secretary, in the 1980 special Lucy Moves to NBC. At the time of her death in June 2012, at age 92, Singleton was the last surviving major recurring adult cast member from the Lucy shows. So, with Ralph's secretary calling him, George Brooks comes in. He wants to get Ralph to the doctor right away, but Ralph says it's just cramps and he'll be all right. He goes home, sleeps on the couch, where Ethel finds him. Feeling better, darling? Huh. I'm fine. Isn't it time you were off to the drama club? Mm -mm. I'm not going today. Well, you're not staying home on account of me. Yes, I am. I'm going to take care of you. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. The way you and George Brooks talk, you'd think I was an invalid. Well, George phoned while you were sleeping, and he's very worried about oh, you. Oh, nonsense. You know how George exaggerates everything. Well, still, I think I should stay home with you. Well, what's Don Welbeck going to do? Rehearse with a chair? Don't argue with your old man, darling. And Ralph is looking very old in this scene, emphasizing how much older he is than his wife. There's a really nice crossfade here 
Ralph crosses his hands on the couch. The fade keeps his hands almost in the same spot on the screen, but now he's in his workshop, which it turns out is actually the garage, fixing a wooden chair. He looks on his shelves and cabinets for glue, I suppose. What he finds instead is an arsenic container. Nice big lettering on it. Arsenic. Poison. With a skull and crossbones on it as well. Ethel enters to use the car, and Ralph asks her about it. Darling, did you buy any weed killer lately or any spray for the rose bushes? No, do we need some? I'll order it. No, but I just found a package I don't remember buying. In that old cupboard of yours, darling, that's been full of junk for years. You really ought to do something about that. <laughs> I'll probably find a lot of surprises there. <laughs> well, and uh, don't let Don Welbeck turn your back to the audience. She drives off in the car, but in the very next scene, it appears that Don has taken her home. In fact, she actually says, Thanks for the lift, Don. I'd invite you in for a nightcap, but Ralph isn't feeling well. I understand. Some of the time, then. Good night, Ethel. And there's Don speaking. It's the only time he speaks, and we never actually see him. I notice there's sirens in the background. They continue a little further into the scene. An interesting choice. The door is slammed shut, a sound that we will hear again that will be the harbinger of crucial information later in the episode. Well, you were home early. Well, I was worried about you. How are you feeling? <laughs> Good as new. How'd the rehearsal go? Oh, all right. Ralph, you still look pale. Well, dinner didn't sit so well, I guess. You didn't have another attack? No, no, no. But I, uh, I had to eat some of Mrs. Sutton's lamb curry to keep peace in the family, and I guess it was a little too spicy for me. But I'm fine. Well. Darling, do you mind if I watch the late show? No. Don't wait up for me. All right. Darling, you know, I've been thinking of... Mrs. Sutton's first month with us is up tomorrow. Is it really? It seems much longer. I was wondering if we're completely satisfied with her. I don't see how we could do much better. She's a real fine. Oh, yes, she is an excellent cook, well, but... I thought you liked her. She certainly dotes on you. Well, we get along fine. It's just that... I don't know. Now, you're not still pouting about that silly old newspaper being all wrinkled up, are you? Well, it is very annoying. Darling, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I believe you're getting crotchety. Okay, okay. Do you have to watch this? No. They go upstairs together, and the camera pans over to Mrs. Sutton, who is spying on them from the kitchen. She walks out into the living room to watch them go. Now, Janet Ward is very good in this scene. Mostly non-verbally reacting to Ralph's lines. First of all, she expresses relief that he didn't have another attack. There's a bit of a laugh when he says the lamb curry didn't sit well, which is nice when you consider the ending. Jack Seabrook at Bare Bones E-Zine says of the beginning of this scene that Ralph sits alone in the living room watching TV and sitting very close to what must have been a tiny screen. The lighting in this scene is particularly good as Ralph's face is lit up by the glow from the TV set. We move next to a bridge game taking place the next day. The first shot is in a mirror showing the four players reflected in it. 
Ralph walks over to the mirror and the camera pulls back to show him getting ice from an ice bucket right next to the mirror. It's a very nice shot. While he's there, Ralph sees the newspaper. This one has the headline, Mrs. Andrews Still at Large, Search for Housekeeper Continues. We get a full shot of this one. It also has headlines that read, Citizens Group Demand Reduction in Transit Fares and Court Seeks Adjournment in the same places as they were on the newspaper the day before. But to be fair, no one had the means to freeze this shot on their TV in 1955, so why not mock up the same newspaper? Plus, they did change some of the other articles. There's a spider on the back of the paper, which I assume is not intentional, but it is a very cool effect. The players at the bridge game are Ralph, Earl Kramer, George Brooks, and Doc Pritchard, and they all discuss the Mrs. Andrews case. I, I see they haven't caught up with that Mrs. Andrews yet. Ralph has a theory about that. He thinks those poisonings were accidental. Sure they were. The woman's a psycho, isn't she, Doc? I'm a doctor, not a psychiatrist. Of course, there weren't any of the usual motives. Greed, revenge, bit of passion. What is your opinion, Doctor? Well, I only know what I read. But the old girl certainly seems unbalanced. Her victims are all women, all young and pretty. But in the last case, the husband was poisoned, too, although it wasn't enough to kill him. What I can't understand is why they haven't found it yet. It was over a month ago. Oh, this type runs to a pattern. She's probably got herself another housekeeping job somewhere, and she's lying low. Ah, but wait till the next full moon, or whatever it is that sets her off. Whose deal? I, I wonder if there are any pictures of her. Yeah, there was one in the paper at the time of the last murder, about, well, I guess about the fourth or fifth of last month. Are we playing bridge or amateur detective? Well, I think I'll call it an evening. Oh, oh well, well, my wife isn't well, as you know. I, I, I better go home. There's some nice close-ups of Ralph's face as that conversation goes on, and we can see him thinking it all over and starting to worry. Now, before we go any further, let's stop and briefly look at George Brooks and Doc Pritchard. George Brooks was played by Gavin Gordon, and Gavin Gordon had the distinction of playing Lord Byron in The Bride of Frankenstein. That's the opening segment of The Bride of Frankenstein, where Byron, Shelley, and Mary Shelley discuss the story she's written leading into the sequel. But Gavin Gordon has some other Hitchcock connections as well. He has a small role in Hitchcock's Notorious. He also plays in one scene, Dr. Bertram Sedbusk in Suspicion. Dr. Sedbusk is the brother of Isabel Sedbusk, who is the mystery novelist in the film. And at a dinner party, Cary Grant, who plays Johnny, discusses Isabel's latest mystery. If you're going to kill somebody, do it simply. Am I right, Dr. Sedbusk? Mm, you're right. Just as long as you don't get caught. Do the wine, will you, Phil? Yes, Izzy. How would you do it simply? Mm, I don't know, dear, but I'd, I'd use the most obvious method. The most important thing is that no one should suspect me. For instance? Mm, for instance, poison. Just use the first one that came to my mind. Say, uh, arsenic. Ah, arsenic. I remember in Gloucester, where we exhumed the body four years after, there was still enough poison even in the fingernails and the hair. Yes, but uh, did you get the murderer? Let me see. No, I don't think we did. So there's your arsenic again, and we'll be getting back to suspicion a little later on. Gavin Gordon is in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next one is Crack of Doom, episode 9 of season 2. And Gavin Gordon died in 1983 on his 82nd birthday. 
Walter Wolf King plays Dr. Pritchard. He is in two Alfred Hitchcock Presents and three Alfred Hitchcock Hours altogether. His next one is The Percentage, episode 14 of season three. But he is probably best known as the villain in both A Night at the Opera and Go West, two Marx Brothers films. In A Night at the Opera, he is Rodolfo Lasperi, the opera singer. What do you mean by humiliating me in front of all those people? You're fired, do you understand? You're fired. Hey, you big bully, what's the idea of hitting that little bully? Will you kindly let me handle my own affairs? Get out. Now, what do you got to say to me? Just this, can you sleep on your stomach with such big buttons on your pajamas? Why, you... Nice work, I think you got him. Ah, smelling salts. That'll bring him to. You're sorry for what you did, eh? That shows a nice spirit. Oh, he's coming along. Yeah, he'll be fine now. Walter Wolf King died in 1984 at the age of 84. So a worried Ralph decides he has to get home. There's another nice crossfade here as Ralph exits through the door at George's house and the door to the kitchen replaces it in the shot as Ralph enters from stage left and calls up the stairs to Ethel. She seems to be all right, so he goes into the kitchen to get a cup of cocoa. The double boiler is huge in the foreground as he enters in the background. He pours a cup of cocoa, which looks like sludge. It's black as oil. He takes a sip and doesn't like the taste of it. The music comes up a very concerned music, as he takes an empty jar, which is conveniently placed right there on the stove, and fills it with the cocoa. Ralph takes that jar of cocoa to a local chemist. Yes, there's been some mix-up and it might contain poison. It uh, saved time for you what kind of poison you suspect. Arsenic. The chemist promises to do a test to determine if there is arsenic in the cocoa, and Ralph gives him his card so he can call him at his office. Now, the chemist was played by Olan Sole, and Olan Sole had a very productive career. He has professional credits in nearly 7,000 radio shows and commercials. He is in at least 200 television series and films. He's in the Lux Radio Theater version of Strangers on a Train, which was broadcast December 3, 1951. He's in two Twilight Zone episodes, The Man in the Bottle and Caesar and Me, two particularly bad episodes, but what can you do? And he is the assistant auctioneer in North by Northwest, where he actually has two or three lines. 1,200 once. 1,200 twice. Last call, 1,200. 2,000. 2,000. 2,000. 2,000. 2,000. 2,000. I have. What was it? 1,200. I have 1,200 once, 1,200 twice. 3,000. Sold for 1,200. 
That's Olan saying the last bid was 1200 He is in a total of six Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and two Alfred Hitchcock Hours, and his next appearance is in Portrait of Jocelyn, episode 28. And Olan Sule died in 1994 at the age of 84. So Ralph goes to work where his secretary gets him a back issue of The Chronicle. The headline on that paper is Police Press Search for Mrs. Andrews, and it includes a picture of her. This newspaper also has the new petitions against tax headline that was on the very first paper that we saw. Ralph is relieved to see that the picture doesn't look like Mrs. Sutton, whom he fears is actually Mrs. Andrews. There's only one problem. I had an idea she was a much older woman. Well, I imagine she is. What? Well, that's an old picture of her. Why do you say that? Mr. Montgomery, look at that big hat with all those flowers on it. The style of a dress. Nobody wears anything like that today. Well, how, how dated would you say it is? Oh, 15 years, perhaps more. So that's not good news. And then the chemist calls. Hello, Mr. Montgomery? Yes, thank you. That's all for now, and thanks for bringing the papers. You're welcome. Hello, yes. Yes, this is Mr. Montgomery. Well, never mind the details. Was it poisoned or not? All right. There was not enough arsenic to be fatal, but as I told you earlier, Arsenic is accumulative. I'd say that if you drank that much every day for a week, it would kill you. So Ralph phones home. Now it's his phone that is big in the shot, just like the double boiler was. These shots of something big in the foreground is setting something up. I can just feel it. And it's not Ethel who answers. It's Mrs. Sutton. Yes? Hello, Mrs. Sutton. Let me talk to my wife right away. I'm afraid you can't. What do you mean, I can't? She's not in. No, I don't know where she went. She went out just after you phoned this morning. No, I don't know where she went. Well, I didn't think it was my place to ask. Ralph tells his secretary that he needs to go home. We have our third really nice crossfade from the secretary facing stage left to Mrs. Sutton facing stage left. She's in the foreground. Ralph enters in the background and calls up to Ethel at the stairs. He then confronts Mrs. Sutton. Mrs. Sutton, I want you to leave. But I'm just getting dinner. I don't want you to get dinner tonight or any other time. I'm discharging you. But why? What have I done that's wrong? I think you know that better than anybody else, Mrs. Sutton. But it ain't fair. You've got to give me notice. You'll get a month's wages in lieu of notice. Well, I only done what I had to, Mr. Montgomery, and you can't say that I never took good care of you. Yes, and you'd have taken care of my wife, too, if I hadn't found out. Well, I'm going to give you an opportunity to leave, but I won't guarantee what action I'll take after you leave. Your wife. I knew the minute I seen her that they'd be trouble. I know the type. You can't trust any of them. I want you out of this house in 20 minutes, Mrs. Sutton. Is that clear? I wouldn't stay here anyway. Mrs. Sutton goes up to pack her things, because apparently she's been a live-in cook. Ralph goes into the kitchen and pours the cocoa out. Now Jack Seabrook comments, if Ralph has proof that his cocoa was poisoned and thinks that Mrs. Sutton is the culprit, why does he fire her rather than call the police? This does not come up in the story by Sayers, since he learns that Mrs. Andrews has been captured and never fires Mrs. Sutton. We'll get to the story a little bit later. 
Ethel comes downstairs and asks what's going on, and Ralph tells her that he has just discharged Mrs. Sutton. Then we get our second thump at the front door. The first one, you may recall, was when Don Welbeck said goodnight to Ethel, and she slammed the door. This one is the sound of the newspaper hitting the door, as thrown by the paper boy. Except, wait a minute, didn't Ralph get a morning paper? Oh well, I guess he subscribes to both the morning and afternoon newspapers in his town. Ralph recognizes the sound, and he goes to pick up his paper, where he discovers this headline. Mrs. Andrews captured in Queens. Cook arrested by police. With this caption on a picture, Mrs. Andrews, above, is pictured after her arrest today in Queens. She does not look like Mrs. Sutton. Other headlines in the paper are traffic toll at new high, it's back from the third paper, and building code under fire is back again from the first newspaper. Ralph realizes his mistake, but it's too late. Mrs. Sutton has packed up, she's come down the stairs, and is ready to go. I'm leaving now. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, please believe me, my, my nerves have been on edge lately. Well, if you'll just pay me my wages. Yes, of course, but uh, you see, I, I, I would like to apologize, and uh, perhaps you'd even consider staying on. Not where I'm not wanted. Well, but it, it, it was all a misunderstanding. Uh, I, I thought you were, I mean, well, now that I've spoken to my wife, I know that she was upstairs all the time. Was she? Well, it's not my place to tell you what's happening behind your back. What do you mean, Mrs. Sutton? I mean your wife and that young man that she's in the play with. They made me lie for them, and that's not what I was hired for, Mr. Montgomery. Goodbye. Well, Betty. Ethel? Ethel? Darling, what's the matter? You're not ill again. No, I'm not ill, but... We've got to do something about these nerves of yours. I made you a nice cup of cocoa. It'll quiet you down. As Mrs. Sutton leaves, we get the straight-ahead frozen stare into the camera by Ralph something we've seen in Hitchcock-directed episodes, like Revenge and Breakdown. And as with the double boiler and the phone earlier in the episode, the cup of cocoa nearly fills the entire screen as Ethel holds it up in front of her smiling face. It's a great final shot, actually one of the great final shots of the entire series. We owe that shot to director Robert Stevens, who does a terrific job here. Now, we've already talked about Robert Stevens. He directed episode two, Premonition, and he'll be directing episode 11, Guilty Witness. But I don't think I mentioned this sad fact. This is from Wikipedia. In 1989, shortly before his death, Stevens was robbed and beaten in his rented Westport, Connecticut home, where he had retired in 1987. He died shortly thereafter of cardiac arrest on August 7, 1989, in Westport. He was 68 years old. 
Robert C. Dennis, who wrote the teleplay, is someone else we've seen before. He wrote the story and teleplay of episode four, Don't Come Back Alive. And his next one, like Robert Stevens, is number 11, Guilty Witness. Now, this episode was based on a story by Dorothy L. Sayers. Dorothy Sayers is a very well-known mystery writer, known mainly for her detective, Lord Peter Whimsey. She also edited big omnibus volumes, great short stories of detection, mystery, and horror, though she actually thought her best work was her translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. Several of her stories were reprinted in Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine and some of the Hitchcock anthologies. She died in 1957 at the age of 64. Her story is not entitled Our Cook's a Treasure. Her story is entitled Suspicion. The story was first published in the first issue of Mystery League magazine. Jack Seabrook tells us that Mystery League is a precursor to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine reprinted the story in its December 1950 issue. I found it in a paperback entitled In the Teeth of Evidence and Other Mysteries by Dorothy L. Sayers. Now, the story takes place in England, and the main character is not Ralph Montgomery. He's Harold Mummery, though his wife is still Ethel. Here's the first line of the story. As the atmosphere of the railway carriage thickened with tobacco smoke, Mr. Mummery became increasingly aware that his breakfast had not agreed with him. The story proceeds, more or less, much as the television episode does. The cook is Mrs. Sutton, though Mummery calls his wife Tiddlywinks. We find out during the course of the story that Ethel has not gotten any references from Mrs. Sutton, which worries Mr. Mummery. And Mummery complains about his newspaper, and Sayers writes, Mr. Mummery sighed. He could not explain that it was somehow important that the morning paper should come to him fresh and prim like a virgin. Women did not feel these things. So there you go. There's the source of the strange virgin comment in the TV episode. There are some moments that occur in the story and in other versions of the story that do not take place in the Hitchcock episode. Mr. Mummery finds the arsenic with the stopper loose. He thinks he must have done that and wonders how he could have done that. He makes sure he puts the stopper back in firmly. Later in the story, he finds the arsenic with the stopper loose once again. There have been pictures of Mrs. Andrews in the newspaper, but when he looks at his old newspapers, he finds that the pictures have been carefully cut out. And there's a scene when Mrs. Welbeck comes to tea with her son and talks about the Andrews murder case. Mr. Mummery decides that this kind of talk was not good for Ethel. After all, the poisoner was still supposed to be in the neighborhood. It was enough to make even a strong-nerved woman uneasy. A glance at Ethel showed him that she was looking quite white and tremulous. So Mummery changes the subject successfully. And then Sayers writes, he saw a relieved glance pass between Ethel and young Welbeck. So we come to the end, and in the story, as we quoted Jack Seabrook earlier, Mrs. Sutton comes home to announce that she's just heard that Mrs. Andrews has been captured. And the story ends like this. Mr. Mummery clutched at the arm of his chair. It had all been a mad mistake then. He wanted to shout or cry. He wanted to apologize to this foolish, pleasant, excited woman. All a mistake. But there had been the cocoa, five grains of arsenic. Who then? He glanced around at his wife, and in her eyes, he saw something that he had never seen before. That's a terrific ending. It's so much more subtle and clever than the episode. But the episode is so much more subtle and clever than any other versions of this story. Because there are other versions of this story. Let's look at some of them. 
We begin with radio and the suspense radio program that presented a version of this story entitled Suspicion on August 12, 1942. That particular episode is lost, but apparently it starred Pedro de Cordoba and Helen Lewis. The program was repeated on suspense on February 10, 1944. That is, it was apparently the same script as the 1942 version. But this one starred Charles Ruggles as Mr. Hubert Mummery. This version is much like the short story, except it has the craziest alternate ending that I could possibly imagine. Oh, it's my fault. I did it. It's my fault. I left her here. I did it. I killed her. Oh, Mr. Mummery, sir. Oh, Ethel. 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 Ethel, where is she? Well, back. what are you doing here? I'm Scotland Yard, Mummery. Easy now, take it easy. Well, where is she? Tell me, I have a right to know. Who is the inspector? I'm Hubert Mummery. Where's my wife? Now, try to be calm, Mummery, won't you? That's a good fellow. What do you mean? Why are you sitting down here? Is she... Is she beyond help? I'm afraid she is, sir. Oh, Lord. Oh. Can I see her? I'm afraid not, Mummery. It'd only be painful. Oh, Lord. But that Mrs. Andrews, though, you've got her. She didn't get away. No, we've got Mrs. Andrews right enough. Oh, Ethel. You see, officer, we've only been married ten weeks. Ten weeks yesterday, I... Sutton. Sutton. Yes, Mr. Mummery. I'm very sorry about things. Sorry for you, sir. <laughs> sorry for me. That's good. Well, it's too late now. Well, take her away. Take her away. Oh, Mr. Mummery, I'm sorry. So Take her away. You'd better go, Sutton. Your head is upset, of course. Wants to be alone. Oh, you see, Mrs. Mummery and I were in desperate need of a cook. But it's just as I said to Brooks. One can't be too careful about taking a strange person into the house. Why, well, I didn't even suspect her until yesterday. I had no idea there were... Go. Are you letting her go? Well, you can't let her go. That's Mrs. Andrews. Don't... Oh, please, sir. Oh, it's chock full of arsenic. I didn't have no hand in that broth, sir. It was night while I was at the green grocery. You can't let her go. Why, this... And I didn't like to tea yesterday. You know, your breakfast yesterday morning. So help me, Mr. Mummery, sir. I didn't. I didn't. You... Ethel. Oh, Ethel, my darling. I thought you were... Oh, are you all right, Ethel? I... Ethel, dear. What is it? I overheard what you said you told books about taking a strange person into your house. You were right, you know, Hubert. Well, I, 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 I don't understand. Ready? Quite. Come along, then. Ethel. Well, not Ethel, really, sir. Carolyn would be more like you. Yes. And by the way, you're forgetting a rather important little formality, aren't you? Eh? Oh, yes. Sorry, Mummery. Carolyn Andrews, I arrest you for murder. In the name of the king. Wait, what? Welbeck is Scotland Yard? Ethel is Mrs. Andrews? There you have it. The story appears again on Suspense on April 3rd, 1948, in an hour-long episode starring Sam Jaffe and Lorene Tuttle. Mr. Mummery is now Edward Mummery, and Welbeck's first name is John, not Don. We again have the scene with Mrs. Welbeck, the moment where Mummery discovers that someone has cut the Mrs. Andrews articles out of the newspaper, and the moment where Mrs. Sutton comes home and announces that Mrs. Andrews has been caught. But then the ending is a little bit different than the short story and the Hitchcock episode, because it's radio, 
And that requires more histrionics. Then it's all been a mistake. A mad mistake. Darling, I don't know whether to shout or to cry. I certainly must apologize to Mr. Sutton. We're safe, don't you see? We're safe! But what about the cocoa? Mr. Dimthorpe and Marsh's test and five grains of arsenic. What do they all mean? Who could Who have... Who could have what? Ethel. 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 Yes, Ethel. To me. To do it to me. You fool! You fool! Don't you know that it's been Welbeck? That it's always been Welbeck? Something I've never seen before. It's always been there. It's just that you've never looked. That would be the police, Ethel. They've come here for you. Now things start to get a little jumbled. The trouble is that there are two different stories making the rounds under the title Suspicion. One is the Dorothy Sayers story. The other is the 1941 film with Joan Fontaine and Cary Grant directed by, yes, Alfred Hitchcock. There had already been two versions of the Hitchcock story on Lux Radio Theater. The first on May 4, 1942, starring Joan Fontaine reprising her role as Lena and Nigel Bruce reprising his role as Beaky, but with Brian O'Hearn in the Cary Grant role of Johnny. And the second, on September 18, 1944, starring Olivia de Havilland as Lena and William Powell as Johnny. Now, seeing as Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland were sisters who feuded most of their lives, you have to wonder how Joan felt about Olivia taking over one of her signature roles. Anyway, here's Joan in the radio show. Oh, it isn't bad news, is it, dear? No, oh, no, no. It, it's from an old friend of mine. Stupid fella. He wants a thousand pounds. You couldn't spare a thousand, could you? A thousand? What does he want it for? Hanged if I know. Probably because I borrowed it from him. You borrowed it? Why? Because I was going on a honeymoon with the loveliest girl in the world, and I wanted her to be happy. Didn't you have any money of your own? No, not a shilling. But I I thought I I had the impression... Johnny, are you... Are you broke? Monkey face. I've been broke all my life. Why didn't you tell me, and... Whatever made you take this extravagant house? Well, I didn't want you to live in a shack. <laughs> Why, a girl like you who's going to come into plenty of money someday? Oh, wait a minute. I, I can't quite get this into my head. Were you thinking of my inheritance? Oh, oh, I don't know what to say. Oh, now, darling, really. Isn't it silly to spend the best years of our lives waiting? Why not be comfortable now? Johnny, I'm just beginning to understand you. You're a baby. And here's Olivia in the very same scene. It isn't bad news, is it? Oh, no, no, it's from an old friend of mine. <laughs> Stupid fellow, he wants a thousand pounds. You couldn't spare a thousand, could you? A thousand? What did he want it for? Hang if I know. Probably because I borrowed it from him. You borrowed it? Why? Well, because I was going on a honeymoon with the loveliest girl in the world. I wanted her to be happy. Didn't you have any money of your own? No, not a shilling. But I thought... I had the impression... Johnny, are you... Are you broke? Monkey face, I've been broke all my life. Why didn't you tell me? And whatever made you take this extravagant house? Well, I didn't think you'd want to live in a shack. A girl like you is going to come into plenty of money someday. Wait a minute. I 
can't quite get this into my head. Were you thinking of my inheritance when you... Oh, I don't know what to say. Oh, darling, really. Isn't it silly to spend the best years of our lives waiting? Why not be comfortable now? Johnny, I'm just beginning to understand you. You're a baby. This brings us to the television suspense series and its March 15, 1949 episode of Suspicion. In an article entitled Murder and Suspense, Hitchcock's Established Reputation, the normally reliable Martin Grahams Jr. writes, When Suspense made the transition to television in March of 1949, producer and director Robert Stevens decided to present the same story as the second episode, starring Ernest Truex and his real-life wife, Sylvia Field. This teleplay was repeated again in November, with Charlton Heston and Meg Mundy in the lead roles. The televised version was more of a copy of the movie than the novel. Despite this compliment, though, Hitchcock in general seems to have preferred the radio series, almost turning into a fan by tuning into the program whenever he got the chance. On the one day of the week that suspense aired, Hitch always made sure that the day's shooting of his latest film would be completed a few hours before broadcast in order to be home in time to listen to the latest installment of Chills and Thrills. During the early 1950s, staff writer John Michael Hayes co-wrote a few episodes with other staff writers, and it was love at first sight as regards Hitchcock and Hayes. Hitchcock called on the young writer and offered him a job scripting his next movie. Hayes accepted the offer, and together the two men collaborated in bringing to the screen such classics as Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. The problem with all of this is that the March 15, 1949 episode is not the Hitchcock movie, it's the Dorothy Sayers story. I have no idea if the so-called repeat in November with Charlton Heston is the Hitchcock movie, because that one seems to be unavailable. In any event, here are Ernest Truex and Sylvia Field in Suspicion, directed by Robert Stevens. Now, our lead male is George Thomas. The Welbeck character is named Bob Dean. And the ending is different yet again. Ethel, that, that cocoa last night. Yes. I had analyzed. How dared you? Why did you want to kill me? Is there someone else? A long time ago, I said, George, I said, can't you eat one meal? Can't you even eat a slice of toast without? I warned you, George. I said, George, I can't stand to hear you digest one more meal. I'm sensitive. Everyone knows I'm sensitive. You heard Mrs. Dean. She said there's no one else to play Camille. Bob is going to be Armand. I think she suspects, though, George. She said there was a girl in his life. After all, George, I am much closer to Bob's age than I am to yours. It's too bad Bob wasn't aware of it. What do you mean? Last night, your Armand eloped with the girl for whom he's been neglecting his studies. It's not true, George. It's not true. It's in the morning paper. But he couldn't. Oh, we were going to play Camille. We were going to start rehearsing. Oh, George. 
How could you? There are two more television versions prior to the Hitchcock episode. The first was shown on the Actors Studio on February 17, 1950, and I haven't been able to see that one. But I did watch the Studio One Westinghouse Summer Theater version, which aired on September 3, 1951, as Mr. Mummery's Suspicion. It stars Roland Young, Faith Brook, and a whole bunch of other people you've probably never heard of. Though Roland Young was Cosmo Topper in three Topper films, and Faith Brook plays Alice Barham in Hitchcock's Suspicion. In this version, Mummery's first name is Harold, Welbeck's first name is Tommy, and at the end, Tommy comes in not knowing Mummery is there, and he calls Ethel Darling. Previously, Ethel has told Harold that she had excellent references from Mrs. Sutton, but she clearly wants to make Harold think that Mrs. Sutton is Mrs. Andrews. In this version, Mrs. Sutton comes home, and there's one slightly different little twist. Did you hear about it, Mumba? It's all over the pub. They caught that dreadful woman that bit for Mrs. Andrews. A girl has spotted her and get a reward. I've been keeping my eyes open for her, carrying around pictures that I cut out of the newspapers of her so that I'd recognize her if I'd seen her. <laughs> Mrs. Sutton. And I'm yeah. that sorry, sir. I stayed so late at the pub, I never got home in time to make your chocolate. Oh, not at all. Oh, Ethel, did you hear the news, darling? They've got that woman, that horrible woman, that Mrs. Andrews. Oh, she never, we don't have anything to worry about anymore, darling. I was so frightened for you. I, I... You, you say you didn't make the chocolate? No. You, you didn't, then? Ethel, have you been trying to... Now, whoever can that be at this hour? What old Dimthorpe probably telephoned the police station. Lizzie Sutton, would you mind answering the door, please? And this version ends with Ethel and Welbeck holding hands as they walk off together to be arrested by the police. So how many versions of the story is that? It's becoming a regular occurrence to find episodes in the series of stories that have been produced before. And it makes you wonder if the viewers in 1955 had distinct feelings of deja vu while watching these early Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. Anyway, after all that and all the confusion, it's little wonder that by the time the story got to Hitchcock, it wasn't called suspicion anymore. Now, I can't go on about the confusion with the Hitchcock movie suspicion and not talk about the film itself. So let's take a look at Alfred Hitchcock's 1941 film, Suspicion. Here's Bill Crone, author of Hitchcock at Work, from the short feature Before the Fact, Suspicious Hitchcock, included on the Suspicion DVD. The novel Before the Fact by Francis Isles, which is the basis for Suspicion, had interested Hitchcock for some time and also RKO. They bought it in 1935. The film ended up being made by Hitchcock uh, in 1941. It was an experimental novel in that it was told by the murder victim. And uh, the murder victim, Lena, actually becomes an accessory before the fact to her own murder, which is what ends the book. Okay, so that is how the novel goes. Lena is actually murdered by Johnny, and she allows herself to be murdered because she loves him. Or the novel goes this way. 
As Donald Spoto says in The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, Lena discovers that he is planning to kill her, and at the same time she finds she is pregnant. Feeling that her husband must not reproduce himself, she leaves a suicide note, then calmly drinks the poisoned milk he offers her and dies. Now, I haven't read the book, so I'm not really sure which one is right. But in any event, in the book, Lena allows Johnny to murder her. But that's not how the movie goes. So this is your suspicion spoiler alert. Stop now if you don't want to know how the movie goes. As you can probably figure out by now, the meat of the story is that a young, well-off woman, Lena, played by Joan Fontaine, falls in love with a rogue, Johnny, played by Cary Grant. They get married. He has no money. He plays the horses. He pawns her father's favorite chairs. He gets fired from a job and doesn't tell Lena about it. He's generally unreliable, and she starts to get a suspicion that he's planning to murder her for her money. In Hitchcock Truffaut, Francois Truffaut notes that some of the critics who'd read before the fact reproach you with having changed the whole thing. In our discussions about The Lodger, you referred to suspicion and said that the producers would have objected to Cary Grant being the killer. Let's pause for a moment there in that quote, because here is a snippet from a 1966 interview in which Hitchcock is asked about whether The Lodger really should have been Jack the Ripper, and he compares it to suspicion. Wouldn't you have dearly liked your Jack the Ripper of The Lodger to be proven at the end of the film, Jack the Ripper? Of course. But you see, that's the penalty of having a film star in a story of that kind. He inevitably has to be uh, cleared. Now, I had the same experience with Cary Grant in a film called Suspicion. Uh, this will be a disadvantage. On the other hand, if you have a chase story, it's an advantage to have a named star in that because the audience anxieties are increased because they know him well. He's a relative. Yeah. He's a relative, relative in trouble. But in your mind, Arthur, <coughs> the fellow definitely was the fiendish stabber. Well, he had to behave like one, so the excuse was given that he was a nervous, um, almost a schizophrenic. He was a man who was a brother of one of the victims and really had gone off his head. But these are rather clumsy sort of excuses. Strictly speaking, they, you should not have a matinee idol in a role of that kind. The matinee idol in question is Ivor Novello, who was sort of the Rudolph Valentino of the British cinema of the silent era. He's also in Hitchcock's film Downhill. Unfortunately, his fame hasn't really stood the test of time, not like Cary Grant's anyway. Let's get back to Truffaut and his quote about Cary Grant's character being the killer. He says, if I understood you correctly, you'd have preferred that he be the guilty one. And Hitchcock replies, well, I'm not too pleased with the way suspicion ends. I had something else in mind. The scene I wanted, but it was never shot was for Cary Grant to bring her a glass of milk that's been poisoned, and Joan Fontaine has just finished a letter to her mother. Dear Mother, I'm desperately in love with him, but I don't want to live because he's a killer. Though I'd rather die, I think society should be protected from him. Then Cary Grant comes in with the fatal glass, and she says, Will you mail this letter to Mother for me, dear? She drinks the milk and dies. Fade out and fade in on one short shot. Cary Grant, whistling cheerfully, walks over to the mailbox and pops the letter in. Well, that's all well and good, 
But in The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, Donald Spoto writes that Hitchcock talked to RKO executive producer Harry Eddington when RKO was trying to figure out what to do with the rights to the book and said that he, Alma, and Joan would revise the story by making the husband's deeds the fictions in the mind of a neurotically suspicious woman. Spoto continues, It is important to emphasize this single point because Hitchcock always insisted that the situation was quite different. He wanted, he said for years afterward, to follow the novel faithfully. But this idea did not occur to him at the time, for it cannot be found in the first treatment he submitted to RKO, and it is contradicted by memos in which he stated emphatically that he wanted to make a film about a woman's fantasy life. So there's some trouble with how the film should be ended. But the casting of Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine seems perfect, right? Well, it was not without its problems. In her autobiography, No Bed of Roses, Joan Fontaine wrote, The only mistake Cary Grant made on suspicion was not realizing that the part of Lena was the major role. It was through her eyes that the story unfolded. She had all the sympathy. And in fact, Johnny is introduced literally through Lena's eyes. When we get a point of view shot on the train of Lena looking at a photo in the paper of Johnny and looking up to see the real Johnny sitting in front of her. Joan Fontaine continues, He was the villain. Carrie found this out halfway through the shooting schedule. According to John Russell Taylor in his book, Hitch, through the enormous success of Rebecca, Joan Fontaine had become a big star, but that did not seem much to moderate her nervousness or make her any easier to work with. She was set to play the role of a wife who comes to suspect that her ne'er-do-well husband is plotting to kill her, and Cary Grant privately observed at the time that this was very understandable since anyone who knew him and knew Joan Fontaine would know also that he was very likely to strangle her right away. In Spellbound by Beauty, Donald Spoto says that Hitchcock had wanted to cast French star Michelle Morgan in her American debut, and Thomas Letch in the Encyclopedia of Alfred Hitchcock says... Hitchcock was eager to sign Cary Grant, but Grant's screen image made it impossible to accept him as a killer. Although Joan Fontaine had been so taken with the role of the spinsterish Lena McLaidlaw that she offered to waive her salary, she was no more comfortable with Grant than she had been with Laurence Olivier in Rebecca. Still, Robert Osborne, film historian and former host of TCM, says in the Before the Fact featurette, The other thing about Hitchcock... Joan Fontaine meeting Cary Grant in that way is very much the definitive Hitchcock heroine. Somewhat sexually repressed or not yet sexually abandoned. And she's blonde and she's beautiful and graceful and fragile and British. Okay, and what about the title? Here's Bill Crone again from the Before the Fact featurette. Various titles were tried. Uh, Johnny was actually Hitchcock's preferred title. It was the character played by Cary Grant, and that would have made it something of a character study of this odd character. I don't know if it had anything to do with the fact that Hitchcock's Sealyham, his prized dog, was also named Johnny. He appears in the film. <laughs> oh, dog, eh? That's right. Well done, to me. Got him on the Anyway, Hitchcock wanted to call it Johnny, and the people who tested various titles came up with the title Suspicion as one that people would pay to go see, and Hitchcock was horrified. He thought it a trashy title, but he accepted it in the end. If that is true, if Hitchcock wanted to name the film Johnny, that sort of contradicts Joan Fontaine's assertion that Lena is the major role. In any event, Donald Spoto in The Dark Side of Genius has a different version of the battle for the title. 
He says, First, there was the problem of the film's title. At the time, it was customary for studios to engage George Gallup to poll the nation's moviegoers on their responses to proposed titles. He reported that before the fact had a lukewarm reaction. Hitchcock's first choice was Fright, RKO's was Suspicious Lady, and soon Gallup was testing 50 other titles. Among the most amusing possibilities were Search for Tomorrow, Sable Wings, Last Lover, Men Make Poor Husbands, Romantic Scapegrace, Love in Irons, Girl in the Vice. Hitchcock felt that the lack of a definite title gave the production an atmosphere of the haphazard and a lack of focus, attitudes he shunned at all cost and energy. In spite of his annoyed appeals, the studio refused to decide. A few days before the film's release in November, the executives finally agreed on a name Hitchcock had clung to since early summer, Suspicion, which he picked up from the second paragraph of the novel. And the quote from the novel is, Suspicion is a tenuous thing, so impalpable that the exact moment of its birth is not easy to determine. Unfortunately, Spoto himself contradicts himself in his book Spellbound by Beauty, in which he says that Suspicion was a title Hitchcock disliked but had to accept from studio executives. All right, so let's go back to that ending. Here's Donald Spoto again from The Dark Side of Genius. No one had any clear idea how the picture would end. Not only was this completely foreign to Hitchcock's method, it also threw the actors into complete confusion, for no scene or line of dialogue had a sure purpose. For the first time in years, Hitchcock fell ill, and shooting was canceled for more than a week. He returned exhausted and depressed, and Joan Fontaine began to complain about his disinterest in her and the picture. The turmoil then caused Joan Fontaine several bouts of indisposition, and things were so bleak that by April 18, there was talk of canceling the film altogether. Spoto claims that the version with Lena being pregnant and killing herself by drinking Johnny's poisoned milk was actually filmed. And he says, They hoped at one late point to surmount the censor's objection to the pregnant wife's deliberate suicide by adding a scene in which Fontaine had illicit meetings with another man. Suicide was occasionally permitted by the production code as the tactic of a sinner. But as it often is, the power of the sneak preview was considerable. When the still-untitled film was screened in Pasadena with this ending, and the audience laughed, Hitchcock and his cast had to shoot still more footage. But Peter Aykroyd, in his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Brief Life, says, Three different conclusions were prepared for the film, a sign of the confusion that bedeviled the entire process of filming. In one of them, Grant's character is in fact the murderer. The studio rejected that ending on the grounds that the romantic star could not be the villain. The second, in which the wife drinks the milk to no ill effect but saves her husband from poisoning himself, was derided by a preview audience. The third conclusion, according to Aykroyd, is the one they chose, in which, as Aykroyd puts it, the ill-starred couple drive away in a show of apparent amity after the wife realizes that her own fears had clouded her judgment. Now, Thomas Lech, in the Encyclopedia of Alfred Hitchcock, says... The materials on the ending Dan Euler has collected in Hitchcock's notebooks show that at different times, Lena kills Johnny in self-defense, allows him to poison her, gets him to describe his early life to her, listens to his confession of his wrongdoings, and watches him from afar as he expiates his earlier sins by piloting an RAF plane. Here's Pat Hitchcock in the Before the Fact featurette. The ending was totally different on the screen than as it was written. What they wanted to do was Cary Grant's character really wanted to get rid of his wife. So there's a famous scene of him 
carrying the glass with the milk, and she was in bed. Now, what you saw before that was her writing a letter to her mother saying she knew that her husband was going to kill her, but it was fine because she didn't want to live without him. So you see her put the letter in an envelope, you see her lick it, put the stamps on, and then he comes in with the glass of milk, and she drinks the glass of milk, and then she says to him, oh, Johnny, would you please post this letter to my mother? And then the last scene in the picture was him walking out to the mailbox, whistling and putting the letter in the mailbox. So you know he's going to get caught. But they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't allow Cary Grant to be a murderer. So Pat confirms what her father said to Truffaut. On the other hand, maybe she's saying this because this is what she always heard her father say. Is that accurate? Could be. Pat's life, by the way, was affected by this film in a roundabout way. John Russell Taylor in Hitch says, In the film was an actress called Oriole Lee. When she got back to New York, she was talking to John Van Druten, an old friend of Hitch's from British days. At this time, he was having a lot of trouble casting his new play, Solitaire, which was, in effect, a two-character piece involving an old man and a young girl of around 12. Oriole Lee suggested he should consider Hitchcock's daughter Pat for the role of the girl. So shortly afterwards, Van Druten was out in Los Angeles, apparently quite coincidentally visiting the Hitchcocks. He led into the matter very gently, making up a story for Pat's benefit that he wanted her to help him by reading the lines for him so that he could better judge what could be cut. This informal audition was very successful, and Van Druten offered Pat the part with her parents' blessing. Oriole Lee, by the way, plays Isabel Sedbusk, the mystery novelist. It's at her dinner party when we meet her brother Bertram, played by Gavin Gordon, in the clip I played previously. Anyway, Donald Spoto's version of this is, During the early weeks of production on the film, Alma left Los Angeles for New York to oversee Pat's Broadway debut. Their daughter had shown a consistent interest in drama and was about to begin her professional life on the stage at the age of 13. Oriole Lee, the actress who had played the novelist in Hitchcock's Suspicion, was best known for her stage direction of six plays by John Van Druten. At the time she met Pat Hitchcock, Lee was looking for a child to play the lead in Van Druten's new play Solitaire, scheduled to open in New York under her direction early in 1942. Pat read for her and for the author in June 1941, was signed at once, and began to prepare for Broadway. In July, Oriole Lee finished her role in Hitchcock's film and set off for a cross-country auto trip to New York to resume her theatrical career. She never arrived. Oriole Lee, who had been such a warm and encouraging mentor, was killed in an auto accident outside Kansas City. When Pat finally came to New York to begin rehearsals for the play, it was under the direction of Dudley Diggs. In spite of that tragedy, it is the beginning of Pat's acting career, and it starts her on the acting path that leads her to appearing in several Hitchcock films and in a number of Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. In any event, before the film was released, as Hitchcock tells Truffaut, one of RKO's producers had screened the picture, and he found that many of the scenes gave the impression that Cary Grant was a killer. So he simply went ahead and ordered that all of these indications be deleted. The cut version only ran 55 minutes. Fortunately, the head of RKO realized that the result was ludicrous, and they allowed me to put the whole thing back together again. Now, ultimately, many people found the ending to be ambiguous. Here's Thomas Letch in the Encyclopedia of Alfred Hitchcock gushing about this ambiguity. 
The film is structured by several competing logics. The production code stipulates that Johnny cannot get away with murder. The dramatic logic of the film requires him to try to kill Lena to accentuate her status as victim. The curve of Lena's development as a character demands that sooner or later she stand up to Johnny. But Johnny's character is given no corresponding curve. He simply alternates repeatedly between one more impish apology for his bad behavior and one more irrepressible return to that behavior. So the heroine must change enough to stop the hero, but the hero cannot change enough to stop. To put it differently, Lena's suspicions about Johnny must turn out to be true. Otherwise, not only her reactions, but also the occasions that provoke them would degenerate in retrospect into an intolerable series of red herrings. But they must be false as well, because they coalesce into something like certainty so early on that there must be some dramatic reversal in store. The ending as it stands tries to solve this problem in the same terms as The Lodger, by rationalizing its hero's suspicious behavior in terms of a new revelation. Johnny has been planning to kill himself. But Johnny makes such an unconvincing suicide that it makes more sense to read the ending as a blackly comic return to form as Johnny tenders still another confession to his suspicious wife, puts his arm around her, and leads her back home in preparation for his next scheme. So that provides a complexity to the ending that I certainly never considered. To me, Suspicion is a more conventional film than what we often think of for Hitchcock, but it still has plenty of Hitchcockian touches. Right at the start, the film is disorienting as it begins in complete darkness with the dialogue beginning. Is something wrong with the movie projector? Is this the way it should be? The audience starts off kilter. It turns out that Lena and Johnny are on a train that is going through a tunnel. As they pass through, the lights come up and they meet for the first time in the compartment. But we don't see Johnny enter because of the darkness. It is like he is always in her life, already there. There's a hilltop tussle that is reminiscent of Wuthering Heights, in which it looks like Johnny is trying to murder Lena, when actually... Now, what did you think I was trying to do? Kill you? Nothing less than murder could justify such violent self-defense. Look at you. Let me go. Oh, I'm just beginning to understand. You thought I was going to kiss you, didn't you? Weren't you? Of course not. I was merely reaching around you, trying to fix your hair. What's wrong with my hair? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. It would have been extremely discourteous for me to bring the subject up. So Johnny even brings up the question, what did you think I was trying to do, kill you, just to plant it in our minds within the first 10 minutes of the movie. Later, there's a wonderful shot of car tracks appearing to go off a cliff. There turned out to be evidence that Johnny was rescuing his friend Beaky before his car plunged over the cliff. Those tracks remind me of the parallel lines that so upset Gregory Peck four years later in Hitchcock's Spellbound. There are shadows throughout the whole film, but they deepen and become more elaborate, almost geometric, as suspicion sets in, forming intricate patterns on the walls. Brings a sort of German expressionism to the whole affair. There's an interesting unnamed character at Isabel's dinner party. There are five people in attendance at the party. Isabel, her brother Bertram, Johnny, Lena, and this fifth character, a woman with short hair wearing a man's coat and tie. We're never told who she is or what her relationship is at the dinner party, but you could stipulate that she's Isabel's gay lover. Now, the only way that we get around the production code is perhaps with the confusion that Dr. Bertram may be perceived as Isabel's husband, but it is actually pointed out that he is Isabel's brother. So that's a very interesting moment in the 1941 film. Then there's the soundtrack by Franz Waxman that does wonderful things, moving from light to dark, from romantic to sinister, and playing off of Strauss's Vienna Blood Waltz that has become Lena and Johnny's song after the Hunt Ball. 
face? Hello. Hello, monkey face. Hello, Johnny. Here it is again as Johnny brings the may or may not be poisoned milk up the circular staircase. That brings us to the effect that so delighted Hitchcock that he had to tell Truffaut and plenty of other people about it. Here he is in Hitchcock Truffaut. By the way, did you like the scene with the glass of milk? I put a light in it, Truffaut says. You mean a spotlight on it? And Hitch says, no, I put a light right inside the glass because I wanted it to be luminous. Cary Grant's walking up the stairs and everyone's attention had to be focused on that glass. And I have to admit, it is a pretty cool effect. In the end, no matter what you think of Suspicion, it was a huge success and was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Franz Waxman was nominated for his musical score, and Joan Fontaine won for Best Actress. She, as Donald Spoto notes in Spellbound by Beauty, was the only performer in a Hitchcock movie ever to take home an Oscar. Let's wrap up with some reviews of Our Cook's a Treasure. In an IMDb review, Snow Leopard writes, This well-crafted mini-thriller adapts a Dorothy L. Sayers story very nicely into the half-hour television show format, and it is also helped considerably by Everett Sloan's leading performance. It sets up the tension efficiently, adding some good touches as things play out. Hitchcock's opening and closing remarks, full of his morbidly dry sense of humor, also contribute to a very good episode. And in another IMDb review... Doug Depke writes, In my book, putting crime into the white-collar suburbs is a classic mark of the series and resonated, I expect, with a 1950s audience. This is from a review on themotionpictures.net. Everett Sloan is great in his role of suspicious Ralph. He doesn't act stereotypically detective-like, which suits the character, since he is, in fact, a real estate agent by profession. The episode is highly entertaining, with a psychological edge brought out by Sloan's performance. A lot of information and twists are packed into the very end, leaving the viewer fairly stunned as they digest Hitchcock's dry humor in the closing wrap-up. Jacqueline Pye, the pie lady, gives it an A. Yes, friends, we have our first A. This is the first excellent, nearly perfect AHP episode. Not only does it star two of my favorite character actors, Everett Sloan and Beulah Bondi, but it's directed and arranged to deliver quite a surprise at the end. And Jack Seabrook says, Our Cook's a Treasure is an example of how the cast and crew of Alfred Hitchcock Presents could work together to take a classic short story and adapt it into a superb half hour of suspense. In addition to the fast-moving script by Robert C. Dennis, the direction by Robert Stevens is excellent. I would agree that the direction is excellent, and the script, I suppose, is fast-moving, and it's a good episode, but I'm not wowed by it as much as The Pie Lady, for instance, giving it an A. I think it's very solid, but I don't think of it as one of the best episodes in the series. And it's interesting to compare Our Cook's a Treasure and Hitchcock's Suspicion, because they're actually two different tales of what suspicion can do. In the film, as the ending was finally realized, suspicion is a destructive thing that nearly cost Lena her marriage. 
and as she fights to resist Johnny's helpful hand in the car, her life. In our cook, on the other hand, suspicion is a helpful thing, although not in the way Ralph expects. Although he has the wrong culprit, Ralph's suspicion keeps him from drinking the poison cocoa and prompts him to have it analyzed. The story ends with the line, he glanced around at his wife, and in her eyes he saw something he had never seen before. What is it exactly that he sees? Besides, of course, that she is poisoning him. We see the same look in Ethel's eyes in the episode as she looks into our eyes as we stand in for Ralph. What do we see there? That was a warm and touching little fable, wasn't it? The kind of story that gets you right here. Or about my wine testing. I'm afraid I was very much mistaken about Brand Z. You'll be relieved to hear there was nothing wrong with it. Nothing had been added. You see, it wasn't wine. It was mosquito spray. The arsenic belonged there. Apparently, the mosquitoes prefer their spray very dry. And here is another discrepancy between what we have on the DVD and what Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom printed in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. The DVD seems to be pretty smoothly one take with no break for the commercial. But did Hitchcock do more than one version, more than one take? In the Alfred Hitchcock Companion, after Hitchcock says, apparently the mosquitoes prefer their spray very dry, he says, and now let us turn from the ridiculous to the sublime and listen to a few concluding remarks from our sponsor, after which I'll be back. And then after the commercial break, he begins with, my, time certainly passes quickly when you're being entertained. We'll get to the rest of it in a moment. But I also wanted to add that when he says, the kind of story that gets you right here, he claps himself on the stomach. I mentioned last time that I received an email from Grant in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I want to read it this time. Grant writes, I wanted to offer my appreciation for a truly excellent podcast. I first heard of you from Tom Elliott's Twilight Zone podcast. Let me just add parenthetically that that is an excellent podcast, and everyone should check it out. And I certainly see the similarity in effort and thought put into your podcast. I have listened to every episode and hope to hear more. I am a big fan of Hitchcock, having seen all of his films, even the bad ones from his apprentice days. I also enjoy Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Even when the episode is merely ordinary, it is elevated by Hitch's intros and outros. It is also a delight to see the mix of seasoned actors from Hollywood's golden age, as well as young faces that would go on to greater fame and success. Your most recent episode about Triggers and Leash was an excellent mix of analysis and archival interviews. In particular, one of Hitch's comments was about the cliché filming of barroom brawls in westerns. That made me think of the excellent way Hitchcock filmed the brawl in the roadhouse in Young and Innocent, 1937. He intercuts many close-ups of faces and fists, managing to make you feel the punches while also injecting humor and suspense. It also is very much servicing the plot as an important clue is acquired. It has been a while since I saw the film, but I have always felt it deserves to be better known, and not just for the tour de force crane shot that leads to, or indeed provokes, the climax of the film. Keep up the good work. It is much appreciated. Well, thank you very much, Grant. I appreciate your letter. I hadn't seen Young and Innocent for a very long time either, so I felt I should check it out again. And I agree, it is really underappreciated. It seems sort of creaky and old now, most of the prints that you're going to see are not particularly crisp, but it's a terrific Hitchcock film. And then I got an email from Jack Seabrook. Yes, that Jack Seabrook. And he writes, Dear Al, I have listened to the first two AHP podcasts and enjoyed them a great deal. I have been working on a similar project for a number of years and wanted to point you to my articles online. 
I have written about circa 185 episodes to date. Here's the most recent. And he gives me a link to barebones.blogspot.com. And here's the most recent list of all I've done. And there's another link. I have written a couple of books about popular culture authors, and he's got an Amazon link, so you can look Jack up on Amazon. But The Hitchcock Show is a lifetime love of mine. I am approaching it from a literary standpoint, with my way in each episode being to examine the source story or novel first, and then look at how the teleplay writer adapted it. Please use any of my online work for research if you think it might be useful. I've uncovered some pretty neat and obscure things. There are a number of instances where the Graham's book is an error, especially about sources. I look forward to more entertaining podcasts. Well, thank you, Jack. And what I thought was really interesting about this particular email was that Jack sent it before he listened to any of the episodes in which I cite his work. So I wrote back to Jack and I told him that I appreciated his invitation to use his research and that if he keeps listening, he's going to hear his name a lot. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD, Citizen Kane, It's a Wonderful Life, I Love Lucy Season 3, A Night at the Opera, North by Northwest, Suspicion, which includes the feature Before the Fact, Suspicious Hitchcock, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, Spellbound by Beauty by Donald Spoto, and Alfred Hitchcock, A Brief Life by Peter Ackroyd are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The 1944 and 1948 radio suspense episodes, the TV suspense episode, the Studio One TV episode, the two Lux Radio Theater episodes, and the Shadow episode are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this episode, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E... R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, Episode 9, The Long Shot, starring Peter Lawford and John Williams. Next week at this same time, I shall invade your living rooms again, provided your television set holds up. Good night. Thank you.